Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Let's get our Bibles and go to 1 Kings chapter 19. I want to talk about hitting the wall. What first made me think about this is I'm watching the Olympics and I'm watching Simone Biles, and you probably know the story. I mean, she's the greatest gymnast of all time. Clearly, she's got more world championships than anybody. She's got more gold medals than anybody. She has five skills named after her. I mean, it's just, it's not even close. Second place is not even close as to who the greatest gymnast of all time is. And so we're all at the Olympics this year expecting Simone Biles to just get another sack full of gold medals and go home and just verify and validate that all that we already knew about her. And then the craziest thing happens. During the team competition, in the very first event, the vault, she does this weird vault. It's like she hadn't done it before. And she lands awkwardly, and it's just very strange. And then all of a sudden, she walks over to her coach, has a conversation with him, walks over to the team, has a conversation with them, and then lets everybody know, I'm not competing this year. And it's like, what? What happened? What just happened? What did I just see? And I don't pretend to understand all the psychological aspect of what was going on in the mind of Simone Biles, but I would venture to say what happened was she hit the wall. She hit the wall. That's what runners call it when you reach a point where you just can't run anymore. They call it hitting the wall. And it can happen to everybody. Um, It can happen to the greatest gymnast that ever lived, and you can realize that if it could happen to her, It could happen to any gymnast, but I'm telling you, it doesn't have to be gymnastics. It can happen to every single one of us when the tension of life becomes such that I just can't take it anymore. You mean you think about Simone Biles and uh, my wife tutors an elite gymnast. And so we see some of the pressure and the stress on the body and the mind and everything that goes on in that. And then you realize you ratchet that up to a whole different level of the expectations of the country, of the world and everything. And all of that stress begins to accumulate and you reach a point and you go, I don't think I can do this anymore. My brain and my body sort of disconnect and I just can't do what I want to do. That's hitting the wall and it can happen to everybody. It can happen to a mom who thought that being a mom was going to be the greatest thing ever. And now she's got these kids screaming at her all day. And these little dictators are running around the house demanding all the time. And she's like, I don't know if I can do this. She looks at her life and says, what have I done? I've ruined my life. It can happen to businessmen who get overextended, businesswomen who get overextended, people who are just caught up in academics who are struggling to make the grade and do all of that. And the more that pressure and stress builds and the more you feel like you're failing and you're falling behind, it's easy to hit the wall. I remember I hit the wall. When I was early in ministry, I had been a youth minister for 10 years and then I became a pastor and I'm down in Houston pastoring this small church and I thought, man, when I get there, by the by the first year, we'll get everything rocking. By the second year, we'll be rolling. But five years later, we'll be ruling the Houston area and everybody's going to want to come to this church. Yeah, that didn't happen. I'm mowing the grass and changing light bulbs and doing everything. And you have this this real feeling that if I slow down even for a second, this whole thing is going to collapse around me. And I'm 34 years old with a family and three kids and, and needs and all of that. And all of a sudden, my heart starts to freak out and it starts to beat too fast. And I start having heart palpitations and I put me in the hospital. I'm laying in a hospital bed looking at my wife and we're just starting out. And I'm going, I don't think we can do this. It can happen to anybody. 
It can happen spiritually. I'll tell you, John the Baptist hit the wall when he sent that request to Jesus. Are you the one or should we look for another? Peter hit the wall that night in the garden when that little servant girl came up to him and said, aren't you one of them? And he said, I never knew the guy. I mean, Jacob was coming home from Uncle Laban's after 21 years, and all he can remember are the last words of his brother Esau, when I see him after daddy dies, I'm going to kill him. And then word comes to Jacob that Esau's coming with 400 guys, and Jacob hits the wall that night, and he wrestles with God. Elijah hit the wall in 1 Kings chapter 19, and God put it here for you and me, because He wants us to learn from the example that these guys set. So let's take our Bibles and let's look at it. Let me give you some background history in the, in the dust up to this, okay? So here's the background. After King Solomon, there are really only two kings in Israel. Well, three if you include Saul. Saul, David, and, and uh, Solomon, who were the kings of the United Kingdom of Israel, the glory days, the golden years of Israel. After Solomon, they had a civil war. The kingdom divided into two parts. The ten tribes of the north became known, known as Ephraim or Israel. The two tribes of the south became known as Judah. And there was a bitter animosity between those two nations for the rest of their existence. In the north, they didn't have the law, the temple, Jerusalem, none of that. And so it became somewhat self-styled, and it wasn't long before they began to go off the rails in terms of leaving behind the, the, their devotion to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the God of Moses. And in his place, they gradually had begun to believe in and to worship this false Canaanite deity called Baal. Baal was the preeminent deity of the Canaanites. He was originally second to Dagon. He was the son of Dagon. Uh, his mother was Ashtaroth, but she became his consort, and he eventually became elevated in the minds of the Canaanite to where he was at the peak of their pantheon. And everybody starts worshiping him. And then this king named Ahab comes to power. He marries a foreign queen named Jezebel, who is a Baal worshiper. She brings the prophets of Baal with her into Israel. Ahab actually builds a temple to Baal in the capital city. And not only is now Baal an influential negative aspect of paganism in that country, but he's the official state religion. And anyone who speaks against him is to be cut off. And here's Elijah, who's devoted to the one true God, to Yahweh, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the God of Moses, to the God of Israel. And Elijah is a voice crying in the wilderness, folks, you've got it wrong. You've got to come back. You know, one of the questions I had was, uh, why would these people who had seen God do so much in their lives, they had brought them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, provided for them in the wilderness, had taken care of them, helped them to defeat their enemies in Canaan, had settled them in the promised land. Why, after all of that, and having seen David and Solomon, and having the treasure of the Scripture, why would those people throw off the God of Moses for this God Baal? And I've got a quick, easy answer for you. Here it is. It's because the God of Moses had these troubling things called commandments. And Baal didn't have any. In fact, Baal played to their lust. He played to their hedonism. Baal was the God of fertility. He was the God of rain and lightning and thunder. And the idea was that Baal worship included the, 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 the concept of stimulating Baal through lascivious and 
decadent activity in worship. They would actually get men and women to engage in, in immoral activities in worship. They, there was actually a pole in the center of the worship experience. So it was essentially pole dancing before the Lord, uh, before their God. And, and the idea was that if we could somehow stimulate Baal and Ashtaroth, then they would be stimulated to provide rain for our crops. And so it was very emotional. It was very sensual. It bought into their own sort of junk that they had come to, to uh, desire. And the whole thing was based on prosperity. If you did this thing just right, then you get the rains and the rains are essential for a good crop. And so it was all based around the concept of prosperity. So I buy into this God who has given me this promise of prosperity without any of the demands of personal holiness. It was emotional, sensual, prosperity focused. Sound familiar? I just described a whole lot of the church of America today. And Elijah is a lone voice of truth in this insane world, and he's been hunted and hounded at every corner. And so it's not hard to imagine how he must have felt. I mean, look around our world right now. The American culture to me looks like a limo full of prom kids going full speed on a frozen lake. There's no idea where this thing's about to end up. And anybody who dares to stand up and speak truth and say, you can't do it that way and have productive lives. You can't do it that way and be pleasing to God. You can't do it that way and construct society with civility and mutual self-respect. You can't have society where you don't care about the family. You can't have society where you don't care about absolute truth. You can't do this. But anybody that dares to stand up and say that and disagree with the direction this crazy world is headed is lampooned, vilified, and canceled. Just like Elijah. And so Elijah's been standing against all of this as a voice in the wilderness and the stress is mounting. And so he calls for this final showdown on Mount Carmel. Maybe you remember the story, 1 Kings 18. It essentially goes like this. You know, God, Baal is the god of rain and and uh, lightning and thunder. And Elijah has, through the power of God, declared a famine in Israel, a drought in Israel. So there's been no rain. So he calls the Baal prophets together at Carmel. He says, I tell you what, there's 450 of you, there's one of me. Here's the deal. You make your idol and you call on your God. He's the God of lightning, so you shouldn't have any problem with this. Whoever sends the fire, that's the true God. So they build their altar. They dance around it. They do all these gyrations and gesticulations. And, and, uh, and Elijah finally says, hey, you know, maybe he's asleep. Maybe your God's going to the bathroom. That's the literal Hebrew there. Maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe you need to just shout a little bit more. So they're dancing and jumping. Nothing happens. So Elijah builds his altar and he pours water on it and pours water on it and pours water because he doesn't want anybody to explain it as, you know, accidental combustion. And then he simply backs up and prays, God, you're the real God. Show yourself today. Fire falls. And when that fire falls, it becomes obvious who's authentic and who's not. And so they go out and they kill. They put to death 450 prophets of Baal. And I don't know what Elijah was expecting from this. I assume that he was expecting revival. I assume that he was expecting the king and queen to say, 
well, Elijah, you've been right all along. We're so sorry here. Let's worship God. Let's go back to Yahweh. That's not what happened. As soon as word got back to the wicked king and queen, they said, let Elijah know that he's going to be like one of these dead prophets before the day is out. And then the most amazing thing happened. And I think it's interesting that it happened on the very heels of something very profoundly successful, because that's often how it happens. Right after God gives us some great victory in our life, we find ourselves hitting the wall. That's what happened with Elijah. It's like Satan has this profound ability to, to grab and to wrench defeat out of the very jaws of victory. And so Elijah hits the wall. Look at this, 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life. Stunning words. And he ultimately found himself at a cave at Mount Horeb. But he becomes an example for us because, listen, you're going to hit a wall, man. If you ain't hit it already, you're going to hit it. And the day's going to come where you say, I can't do this anymore. And here's the terrifying thing about that. When you hit that wall and you realize, I don't think I can do this anymore, all of the demands of life don't change. All of the needs that are still out there, all the stuff you have to do, you still have to do. And so you're going to find yourself in this position as Elijah was. What do you do? Well, let me give you three quick, simple insights, okay? The first is stop. Stop. It says, then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, look, it's easy to criticize Elijah in the cave. And I've been guilty of this myself. I always read this with the emphasis on the word what. Okay, and that's the problem with the written word is you can't get where the emphasis is. And if you get the emphasis on the wrong syllable, it's hard to understand. Right. So I don't know what he's really emphasizing. Which word does he emphasize when he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Does he say, what are you doing here, Elijah? Or, what, or does he say, what are you doing here, Elijah? You see what I'm saying? And I always took it as what? What are you doing here, Elijah? And the answer is nothing. I'm not doing anything. And I was pretty hard on Elijah because Elijah answers in the past tense. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord. And I'm like, I get tired of past tense Christians, you know. I get tired of people when you talk to them. Hey, man, what's God doing in your life? Well, I used to do this and I used to do that and I used to do that. And I'm like, you're like Elijah in the cave. And so I become very critical. And those are the words that I used to use and the sermons I used to preach. But here's what I thought. Caves are cop-outs. Caves are places where you hide from your trouble and shirk your responsibility. I used to say that when I was young. But now I'm old. And now I know what walls are like. And I know what caves are for. You see, caves have their place. Caves are a good place to be still and think. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And the literal of that is cease striving. Stop banging your head against the wall. Stop. Just stop. Stop. Be still. And know that I'm God. Because when we get so wrapped up in it, we forget who God is. And that's exactly where Elijah was. Let me show you something that I always missed. You see, I always thought that when he got to the cave, because he's a prophet, God walked into the cave and had some special, you know, personal encounter with him. You know, Elijah's in the cave. Here comes God. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, I've been very zealous and this and that has happened and blah, blah, blah. You know, and so it's this conversation. But look at verse 9 again. 
it says the word of the Lord came to him. And it's not word capital W like Jesus, the word Logos. It's little w. You know what that tells me? That tells me that when he's in that cave, he's not just sitting there doing nothing, but he's reflecting, he's contemplating, he's he's meditating upon the word. And the spirit of God takes the word of God that's residual in his life. And this is why it's so important to have the word in your heart. And he begins to bring the word of God to bear in his life. So God is speaking to Elijah in the same way that he speaks to us. It's not a verbal dialogue between God and a prophet. This is God speaking into the heart through the word of God into the soul of his child. And that tells me that Elijah is receptive and meditative and he's considerate. And and it, it changes the way I see this. I don't think originally in that question that the emphasis was on the what. I think the emphasis was on the here. What are you doing here? In other words, how did you get here? Um, What brought you to this point? I think that's an important question to let the Spirit ask us when we're in caves. Because if we don't ask that question, we'll always find ourselves... Uh, back in the cave and against the wall. It's not what are you doing right now? It's what are you doing here? How did you get here? What circumstances brought you here? And so we have to ask ourselves, what puts me in the cave? And all kinds of things can be in play here. Fatigue, anxiety, health. Man, health will put you in a cave. Loss, disappointment with God, disappointment with yourself disappointment with people. I see three big ones in Elijah's life. I think, first of all, obviously stress. Here's a guy that lived with stress. Look back at verse 10. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. He's seen all of his friends die. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I think I think he raised his voice here. I think he shouted that to God. I have been very zealous. There's a disappointment here. Why are you here, Eli? Well, I'm here because you put me here. Because I'm doing what you told me to do, and everywhere I go, people are trying to kill me. That's why I'm here. And there's anger in his voice. It's all back to stress. You know, stress is cumulative, and when you get too much of it, stress turns into distress. Second thing that may have put him there was sin. You're like, what? Wait, what? This is a life. Hey, Elijah's a, a man. Just like I'm a man, and we all sin. And sin produces anxiety. Let's be clear. Not all anxiety is sin, but all sin produces anxiety. Psalm 38, 18, I think we put it as Proverbs, but it's Psalm. There's only 31 Proverbs. For I confess my iniquity. Now look at this. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. So was sin a part of why Elijah hit the wall? I mean, I don't know, but there's a lot of eye in his message. I mean, look at 1 Kings 18, 22, when he's talking to the prophets of Baal. He says, I alone am left, the prophet of the Lord. And then 1 Kings 19, 10, I alone am left. And he says it again, I alone am left. There's a lot of eye in that. And when you get a lot of eye in your world, you know what happens? Pride begins to percolate up. It's easy for you to say, well, I alone am left. 
In other words, I'm being mistreated. I'm disappointed. I should have been treated better because I deserve better and this is what I got. Or I alone am left. Look around. There's nobody that loves Jesus the way I do. I'm the only one that really loves Jesus. Or I alone am left. Look at the pride. This whole thing depends on me. If I wasn't here, none of this would be happening. You see how it's working? It's not long before I turns to pride. And I'll tell you, maybe it wasn't a contributing factor in Elijah, I don't know, but I do know it contributes to my walls. I know when I sin, that anxiety pours into me. And I think this is why the cross is so important. This is why the cross becomes central, man. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's nobody going to live righteous, not even one. We all need redemption. We all need a place to take our sin. And without Jesus, where are you going to do with your sin? What, do you, what will you do with your sin? That's, that's the problem that the world lives in right now. The, the world today is filled with anxiety, despair, and depression, but they also have come to believe there is no God, therefore there is no sin. And yet the consequences of sin in their life are like pressing down upon them. I mean, that's what the psalmist said. He said in 32.3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning night and day. I mean, people all around us are groaning because they can't see what sin is doing. This is why the cross is so vital. If you don't know Jesus, you've got to allow Him to forgive you and cleanse you of your sin. It's why confession is so important and why we have to stay current and confess our sins one to another so that we stay healed. Because if we don't, it begins to accumulate the guilt and the shame along with the stress. And then that third thing Elijah was dealing with, which was the worry. Look, they seek to take, they seek my life to take it away. Uh, Proverbs 12, 25 says, the anxiety and a man's heart weighs it down. And man, isn't that true? It just begins to wear on you, the worry of, of the worry of people trying to kill him. Look, I've never had anybody say, I want to kill you. I've had some people wish I was dead, but I haven't had anybody say they want to kill me. What kind of worry would that produce in you? And so, you know, you know what worry is? We've said this before. Worry is assuming responsibility God never intended for you to have. God's got this. You don't have to worry. But all of those things, the stress, the, the self-centered focus, the worry, all of that begins to, to work against him. And all of a sudden, he's against that wall. And we can do that. What's put you here? Why are you here? When you're in the cave, you need to let the Spirit ask, why are you here? What put you here? And remember, this is why we have to identify these things so that we can walk with pain. You know what? That moment where I hit the wall when I was 34 years old saved my life because it made me realize I am not invincible. It made me realize I need other people. It made me realize I'm not in this on my own. That's why God gave us this story. We have to run the pace with pace. We have to run the race with pace. You, you, this isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. Look at Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin. There's that sin problem again, which so easily entangles us. See that? And let us run with endurance. It's an endurance race. And so when you hit the wall, you need to stop. Why am I here? What did I do? What happened? And then listen. I think God asked two questions here. The first question was, why are you here? And the second question is, where do you think I am? What are you doing here? You see, Elijah was a guy who had forgotten where God was. 
like we do. He thought God was in big stuff. He was a, he was a, a stadium preacher. Elijah was a, a conference speaker. He's a passion guy. Everywhere he goes, it's the big and powerful, the miraculous. And it's easy to begin to think that's the only way God shows up. A lot of you may think that. You may think, I've got to see God in a powerful way. I've got to see God heal my family or I'm not going to trust Him. I've got to see God heal my finances or I'm not going to trust Him. I've got to see God give me that new car or I'm not going to trust Him. If I can't trust God for a car payment, then what kind of God do I have? You ever hear that? Christians ought to look better, dress better, act better, live in bigger houses and drive better cars. Because God's going to do miracles. Look, it's called a miracle because it's a miracle. If miracles happened all the time, they'd be called normals. And we look for God only in the big stuff. Elijah had reached that point. That's, that's the kind of stuff Philip said. Jesus, just show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus is like, Philip, are you crazy? Have I been with you so long you haven't seen me? You've seen me. You've seen the Father. And so he has to bring him back around and he has to listen. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain, verse 11, before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great and strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking the pieces of the rock before the Lord. Now, this is a big time tornadic wind. And I always read this as he's standing in the cave looking out watching it. But notice he went and got on a mountain. This is happening all around him. This is a force five tornado. And he stands and watches. He's either losing it, he's super fearless, or he doesn't care anymore. But the Lord was not in the wind. Next up was an earthquake. And after the wind, an earthquake. I've never been in an earthquake. They say they're terrifying. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And finally, a blazing fire. After the earthquake, a fire. Man, I, I, I feel like he must have been in California. Because this, this sounds like California. It sounds like he's somewhere where there's a blend of Oklahoma and California. I don't know. You got tornadoes, earthquakes, and fire. But the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. You got that? Here's the thing we got to remember. Sometimes God speaks to everybody. And when He does, He does it in a stadium. Where He does some profound big thing when He wants everyone's attention. Jesus didn't feed 5,000, but one time He wanted everybody to listen to Him. Sometimes He speaks to a few and sometimes He only wants to talk to you. And when God's talking just to you, He doesn't shout, He whispers. It's close. It's intimate. It's a soft voice. It's a still, small voice. And to hear that still, small voice, because that's the way He's going to talk to you when you're in your cave. That's what you need to hear. Here's what you need in a cave. You need to know God is with you in that cave. That's what you need more than everything. And he's saying to you, look, I'm not in that other stuff, but I'm right here with you. I haven't moved. Listen. Listen to my voice. And then watch what happens. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question, but I think this time there's a different emphasis. I think this time is the what. What are you doing here, Elijah? Not what are you doing here, but what are you doing here? And I think the first time Elijah shouted his reply, but I think this time he whispered it. Because this is whisper talk. God's like, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord. 
God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenants, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's almost by road, isn't it? But I feel his anger changing. I feel that experience with God shifting, and anger is giving away to acceptance, and now I'm ready. I'm ready. And what's he ready to do? Well, that last word, here we go, cave dwellers. Go. Go. It's okay to get in the cave. It's not okay to stay in the cave. We need to be still and know that He is God, but at some time we need to move too. The Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hatzel, king of Aram. Hatzel was his guy for Aram. Verse 16, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. So Jehu was the guy for Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphath, Abel of Abel Mehalah, uh, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So Elisha was the guy for the spirit. Verse 17, and it shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hatzel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elijah shall put to death. Now watch this, because this is important. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Wait a second. You got 7,000? What about all that I alone am left stuff? You know what God just did? He just broke down the lie that Elijah was telling himself. He just broke down that lie that he had come to believe, that it all depends on me. I alone am left. Look how I'm mistreated. He's like, Elijah, you ain't alone. I got Hatzel, I got Jehu, I got Elisha, and I got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Open your eyes, son, and get busy again. And go out and do what I called you to do. Only this time, do it in my strength and not yours. This time, build you a team. You know, when you read the Bible, you want to look for things that are repeated. And three times in that passage, you see this word, anoint, anoint, anoint. You know what he's saying? Gather an army, anoint, anoint. Get him in your team, anoint. Because we weren't meant to do it alone. And when we hit that wall... We need to realize we need other people in our lives who are going to help us walk in the victory that God has for us when we come out of there. Look, here it is. It's okay not to be okay. It's not okay to stay that way. You have to get back in the game. If you don't, then you become paralyzed by the experience of hitting the wall, and it begins to sour and it begins to rot, and it begins to corrupt. And that's what so many people do in their bitterness. You need a word from God. You're tired, you're stressed, you're worried. There's been sin in your life you haven't dealt with. You've been disappointed by God. You had expectations that weren't met. You've been disappointed by other people. You've been disappointed by me. You've been disappointed by your wife or your husband or your kids. I get it. And all that stuff puts us in a place where we go, I just don't think I can do this anymore. And so it's good to stop. Be still and know that I'm God. And listen. He's not going to be in the big stuff. He's going to be in that quiet voice speaking words of truth and encouragement to you. But when you've heard from God, go. Get back in it. Only this time, do it more wisely. And watch what God wants to do in your life. You're going to be amazed 
at what He wants to do in your life. Would you pray with me right now? Father, I thank You for these moments where we find ourselves in the cave where we've hit the wall where our hearts are so full of fear that we run like Elijah. And it helps me to see Elijah do that because I realize it's kind of like watching Simone Biles in the Olympics as a gymnast. If I'm another gymnast, I learn from that. If it could happen to her, I mean, she's at the, she's at the top. If it could happen to Elijah, he's at the top. I'm, I'm not impervious to these things. And Father, there are, I have friends right now who can hear my voice who are, they've hit the wall. They're looking the next five minutes, the next five days, and they go, I don't know how I can do this anymore. Father, help them to be still, to stop, to cease striving, to know that you're God, to hear from you. Stop looking for you in the big and the powerful and making demands about how you're going to show up. Just listen. Just listen to that spirit that's in them. And Father, when the time is right, step out of that cave, get back in the game. Father, there are some who need to stop. There are some who need to listen. And there are a lot who need to go. Help us to know what that means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.